So Philippians chapter 1, starting to read at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some priests cry, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what should I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. Nice to see you. Welcome and welcome back. If you weren't here last week, let me just tell you that we're engaged in the morning in a sermon series through Philippians. And we're looking at the letter to the Philippians from one particular vantage point. It's not the only angle you could use looking at this letter, but it's a very helpful one. And the vantage point is this. What can we do to actually experience and enjoy the joy that Jesus promises his followers. 
I'm not going to repeat last week's sermon. You can get it down from online. But uh, we made two particular points we need to carry over this week. Number one, joy is the normal template for Christ followers. It's not an optional extra for the lucky few. Jesus specifically promises his followers joy. And the second point I want to carry on with is joy is a product very often of habits that we have in our lives. Each of us have ways of behaving which could either buttress and increase the joy that we have or could actually enable the joy to seep out of our lives. And uh, I think some of the habits that we have need to be reformulated. And we're seeing this as we get to this uh, second look at chapter one. So would you join me in just praying for a moment? Lord, thank you that you see into our hearts and you see into our lives. And you have good news for us this morning. We want to ask, Lord, that you would speak to us in such a way that we hear your voice in such a way that our hearts change. So come and help me as I speak and help all of us, Lord, to become the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. What's becoming more and more apparent as we dive into this letter of the Philippians is that Paul has experienced plenty in his life which has taught him how to be joyful. He, he will in fact say later on the, in the letter, I've learned the secret of being content. I think it, it's, we're being catapulted into an advanced joy retainment course. And if as I'm going through these habits, it, it seems a little bit overwhelming, and I find it a little bit overwhelming, uh, let's take comfort in the fact that God ingrains the ability to live this joy-filled life in us step by step by step. As we join Paul in prison, this isn't his first experience of hardship. But we are getting to hear from the master secrets which will really help us as we go forward. And it seems to me that in this chapter we encounter four or five very, very common causes of joy disappearing from our lives. We, most likely, I hope, looking around, will never have the experience of being in prison. But what Paul goes through in prison and the opposition he gets and his challenges are not confined to a prison cell. Very often, these are the things that steal joy. See if you relate to any of them. People, individuals, and sometimes a collection of people. People can be a pain in the neck. Some people actually set out to take away your joy, but others do it without trying. People, criticism. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Some people don't like you. And some people don't like what you stand for. Pain. We understand very well, do we not, why people in pain would be vulnerable to losing their joy or contentment. Thirdly, plans. When you have great plans and they're frustrated and they're not turning out as you hoped, 
when you find yourself in a situation you never dreamt you would be, it's very easy for joy to disappear. You might have noticed that so far they all begin with P, people, pain, and plans. The next one doesn't. <laughs> Fear of the future. I could twist it and say phobia, but that's all a bit too clever by half. Fear of the future. If you're worried about the future and anxious about it, well, it could easily rob you of joy. So let's have a look at these causes very often of stolen joy, and let's consider how we could be happy despite all of those happening, because all of them, to some extent, as we see in this portion of chapter one, were in fact happening to Paul all at the same time. So first of all, how to be joyful even when your plans are cut from beneath you? Because that certainly happened to Paul here. His life's been brought to a standstill. And when I think about Paul and the kind of person he was, I think this would have been very, very difficult for him to handle because he's an energetic person. He's an activist, isn't he? When he'd wanted to persecute the church, he didn't sit at home writing tracts about how to do that. He was out there with the mob persecuting big time, going from house to house. And then after his conversion, when he received a commission to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, he threw himself into it. He, he took himself to the strategic cities and he debated in public places and he made the good news of Jesus known. That's exactly how he founded the church in Philippi. His journey through life has not been straightforward up to now in any sense. His experiences include being shipwrecked and stranded in Malta where he was bitten by a poisonous snake. That could take away your joy for a bit. And no doubt in his future plans, he sees himself going to Rome and actually appealing and speaking to Caesar himself face to face. But that isn't how it turned out. He found himself instead pushed to the side, sidelined, and chained and restricted just to one place. He's going nowhere at all. He's under lock and key. He's grounded. And I imagine that's immensely frustrating for him. A few years ago, I read the obituary in the newspaper of a man called Cardinal Francis Xavier. And between 1967 and 1975, he'd been Bishop of Saigon in Vietnam. And then he was arrested by the communists and imprisoned on trumped-up charges for no reason at all. And this is what he wrote. Alone in my prison cell, I continued to be tormented by the fact that I was 48 years old, in the prime of my life, I'd worked for eight years as a bishop and gained a lot of pastoral experience. And there I was, isolated, inactive, and far from my people. And he ruminated on all the things he could have been doing, pastoral visits, training seminarians, encouraging others, building schools, evangelizing non-Christians. But instead, he was brought to a complete stop. On top of the physical suffering of hunger, danger, uncertainty, loneliness, discomfort, injustice. And here's what he was thinking. He, he wrote it out, reflecting later. Prisoners held captive for long periods without trial and in oppressive conditions retain bitter memories and sentiments of hate and vengeance. That's a normal reaction. I was in prison for 13 years, nine of which were in solitary confinement. Two guards watched me, but they never spoke to me apart from saying yes and no. 
but I knew that after all, they were my brothers and I had to be kind to them. I had no gift to offer as a prisoner. I had nothing at all, nothing to please them. What to do? One night a thought came, you're still very rich. You have the love of Christ in your heart. Love them as Jesus loves you. The next day I set to work, first by showing gladness and by smiling. I began to tell stories about my journeys in countries where people live in freedom and enjoy their culture and great technical progress. That stimulated their curiosity and they asked many, many questions. And slowly, slowly, very slowly, we became friends. They wanted to learn foreign languages. My guards became my disciples. The atmosphere of a prison changed considerably. And his obituary in the newspaper began like this. The communists noted his habit of evangelizing his jailers and at first changed his guards every 15 days, but this became too expensive. You get a little bit of an insight of what it's like to be sidelined and grounded. And that's exactly what seemed to be happening to Paul. And yet, yet, he sustains his joy. Now here's the first takeaway lesson for this. We can retain our joy, we can retain our joy even when we can't understand what's going on and why it's happened to us, when we submit and surrender every situation to God for him to use to his glory. Especially those situations which I really don't understand when I'm walking through them. It would have been so easy, we'd have understood, wouldn't we, if Paul had felt frustrated and had turned on himself and had a kind of pity party. And turning on God is certainly a choice we have in these situations, but that's exactly not what he did. He turned to God instead. And his conviction, as he puts it in verses 12 to 14, is, I want you to know that everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. And we can see, from over 2,000 years later, we, we can see how accurate that is because when he was in prison, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Don't you think these works have advanced the gospel? Yes, absolutely. But also, as he'll explain, he woke up to the fact that because he was chained to a guard day and night, 24 hours, he had a captive audience, and he, he shared the gospel with these members of a Praetorian guard, and he writes elsewhere in this letter, he says that throughout the whole palace guard now, it's known why I'm here in these chains, and the reason it was known is because he was talking to those holding him captive. And tucked away in the very, very last sentence of the letter is an indication of the fruitfulness of this, because he, he refers to the members of Caesar's household who are believers. The gospel got through right, it penetrated right to the core of the Roman structure of things. God has the remarkable and indeed the unique ability to adopt everything that happens in this world and use it for good. Even those things we don't understand and we can't see the point of and which are causing us real pain. And the technique that 
Paul is using here is exactly the same technique as the disciples and apostles use in the book of Acts. When in Acts chapter 4 they pray, Sovereign Lord, they can't understand what's going on, but they say, you have determined what has happened. It's exactly the same technique as David recommends in Psalm 37 when he says, stop fretting and trust. And When you and I trust in these very difficult situations, two things will happen. Number one, it's a very powerful witness to those who don't believe. So he writes in verse 13, everyone here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. It's an uncomfortable truth, I think, that Christ followers are like grapes, you and me. It's when we're crushed that people get the full savor of the savior. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. I recall very well, personally, the impression that it made upon me when I was a student to meet a fellow student who was a Christian, whose home life was a horror story. Their father was an alcoholic, and he tormented both his wife and his children, and by any measure, the home she came from was dysfunctional and challenging and difficult. But somehow or other, and it became very clear it was through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and her faith, somehow or other, she lived a life full of hope and wasn't the least bit downcast by these incredible trials. People take note of you and me when things are going badly, often much more than when things are going well. And a second thing that happens when, like Paul, you prevail in a time of testing is it's a great, powerful encouragement to those who are believers because their faith gets strengthened too. Verse 14, because of my imprisonment, many of the Christians here have gained confidence and become more bold in telling others about Christ. So in adversity, we have a choice to make, to trust in God in this mess or not. Do I trust God stopped in my tracks, in prison, going nowhere, possibly facing execution or death by disease? Plenty of opportunities for despair, but there could be a decision here to trust. And Paul has that in his grasp. And he says, I want you to know what's happened to me really has served to advance the gospel. Okay, we'll move on to the second joy killer and our response to it. I can continue to be joyful no matter what if I never let other people control my happiness. I think this is incredibly challenging. That the image here that I, I um, thought of as I was preparing this section is back in the vicarage at home, every radiator has a little dial on it and you can control a thermostat attached to every radiator. And it's almost like other people could sneak in when you're not looking and turn down the old joyometer. And it certainly, Paul spells out that around him while he's in jail, there were three groups of people that were out to make his life a misery. There were critics, there were competitors, and there were conspirators. Now, this is not just restricted to those who want to spread the gospel. In practically every walk of life, you will meet these. And you could well have your critics, you could well have people who are competing against you, and you could well have even groups of people who are conspiring against you. 
In verse 15, it's rather strange to read. Some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some do so out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So there were on-side proclaimers, the people who saw that Paul was in prison, they thought, well, we're not going to let the gospel be held by, back by that. And they went on spreading the good news. They were not a pain to Paul at all. They were an encouragement. But there were some that preached Christ out of envy and rivalry. I think perhaps a, a, a better translation of that is out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. They saw an opportunity here that Paul was incarcerated out of the way, and they thought, great, I can grab the limelight. I can advance my own circumstances. I can claim prominence. And uh, that's exactly what they tried to do. They were a kind of Christian top trumps going on in the background. And it's quite sinister because they organized themselves deliberately to stir up trouble, verse 17. They suppose they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. There were troublemakers. And they tried to attack and undermine Paul's ministry. And the same is going to be true for you and for me. I cannot think of any Christian leader who's advanced the gospel who hasn't had to endure outright opposition. In listening to Rick Warren talk actually on this passage, he gives a, a really horrid example of, from his own experience. Some of you might know that he has a son called Matthew who suffered from depression and his son committed suicide. And Pastor Rick explains that on social media and through all sorts, people wrote and the most appalling things online and to him, um, celebrating his son's suicide, which I know is extreme, but these things were written by other Christians. But it's not just persecution or difficulty that comes because you're a Christian from within the church. The things that are described here is common to everyday life. Competition. It's amazing what we can make a competition of. But I'd be very surprised if it wasn't competitiveness in every single one of our lives. I mean, I've never actually spent any amount of time. Uh, I've never been a member of a college um, community amongst the staff, but I'm pretty sure that catty, caustic comments in the combination rooms of a college happen. I'm pretty sure that in every family there's competitiveness. I've heard mothers competing about how many teeth their children have got. I've heard mothers competing over, do you know my child slept six hours last night? As if it's, you know, greatly down to them. But the thing is, it unsettles you. Then you then go home and think, my help, my child's got no teeth, and it's age four. No. <laughs> or, you know, you think about, it, it kind of goes on all the way through life. My child started to toddle. My child started to walk. My child's got into Cambridge. And then we start to inherit this kind of thing. I live in this kind of a house. I've got these kind of shoes. I've got this kind of a car. And competitiveness can just rock your boats, it can amongst you when you're a vicar, you know, my church is this big, my church is that small. I saw this number of people come to Christ. But none of that, none of that's to have any influence on our joy because that's not where our joy comes from. As, as 
Paul will say, verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is, what matters is, in every way, right or wrong, the message of Christ is being shared. So I'm happy and I'll continue to be happy. Don't let other people knock you away from your main purpose and vision in life. Don't waste strength hitting back at your critics. If we allow the opinion of our detractors to determine our joy, then joy won't be around for long. And I'm pretty sure that amongst us, there'll be many of us who, when we actually think back, we can identify harsh things that have been said to us, which got right under our skin, right under our radar, and they've really uh, diminished our joy. We find it very difficult to handle, and we, we still think of them. So what this point should remind you and say to you, and it certainly said to me as I thought about it, was let go of that. Let go of those comments. You don't have to respond to them. You don't have to be tied down by them. You don't have to let them impact your life one whit, one bit. Now, I'm not talking about constructive criticism aimed to build us up. That's completely different. Of course, we take notice of that. I'm talking about destructive words which wound and destroy. And uh, it's unnerving to find that people are deliberately stirring up trouble. But don't let that steal your joy. It doesn't have to. You can decide to trust in the Lord and plow on. That's exactly what Paul decided to do. And then moving to another cause of joy of being robbed, the fear of the future. Some people are, are held back out of worry and concern over the future. Paul's worked this one out as he sits in jail. He, he works out for himself for two potential futures for me. Either I remain on earth, in which case he says to himself and to the Philippians, I'll be able to continue the work God's given me to do, and that will be joyful. There's fruitful labor ahead. Or I will die, in which case I'll be in the company of Christ face to face, and that's a pretty good outlook. So he says, either way, it's win-win, and I've reason to be joyful. Now, if you're going to actually live out this point and you're going to benefit from it, I just need to say something to you to make sure we're clear here. You need to invite Jesus to be Lord of your life. You need to know now that you're secure in him. Before I was a follower of Christ, I completely misunderstood this. I thought that this is how it worked. I was wrong, but this is how I thought it worked. I thought what religion you had was a bit like backing a horse at the beginning of a race. And it wasn't until the end of a race where you would discover which horse had won. But actually, what we're told in scripture is it's not like that. John says in his gospel, John chapter 17, verse three, he says, this is eternal life that you know Jesus Christ as God's son, the one he sent. And eternal life for me began on December the 8th, 1980. That's the day that I handed my life over to Jesus Christ. And I said, I'm yours, you can be Lord of my life. And I exchanged plenty that day. I, I exchanged the Rupert of old to the Rupert of new. I exchanged an unknown future for me to the known future of being forgiven and being loved and looking forward to being with Jesus. And just like Paul, 
Uh, and just like every follower of Christ here today, I know that when I die, I walk into his company, forgiven and loved. That is the outlook for a Christ follower. So joy awaits us here on earth or there in heaven. And that's exactly what Paul says to himself. And there's another reason that he's filled with joy, despite his circumstances. His focus on his life's purpose. And his life purpose for him was to do what Christ had told him to do. He says in verse 17, for me to live is Christ. Now, I want to challenge us. I won't ask you to say it out loud, but actually, honestly, how would you complete that sentence? For me to live is, you're sitting in prison, what would it be? To get out of here so I can watch TV? It's to reduce my golf handicap. It's to write or to read another book. It's to check how my finances are going and my investments are going up. Well, I don't know how you'd complete a sentence. But I know how he completed the sentence. Primarily, my purpose is to live for Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with reducing your golf handicap or writing your next book or watching TV necessarily, but they won't sustain you on their own. Christ will. And he says, my life's purpose is to complete the work God has given me to do. And incidentally, if you're invested in the kingdom of God, your shares are doing very well. And they will prosper in the future because it's on a long-term growth curve. You can't fail if you invest in that. Okay, let's stop for a moment. Quick reality check. How do we get this from our heads to our hearts? How, do we get, how does this turn from Philippians from what I'm saying about it, into habits that will actually help. What's to be done? Well, Paul gives us a clue here. Certainly, this takes determination. There is willpower in this equation. You're hearing these facts, we're, we're getting these ideas of responses. We are going to have to decide to respond like this. The will plays a part. The will plays a part. So, in Psalm 145, begins, I will praise the Lord. And Spurgeon, a great preacher, said, let me tell you, you'll often have need to say, I will, a great many times, because many obstacles will hinder your resolve. These will cause depression of your spirit, and then you must say, I will exalt you, my God the King. Poverty, sickness, losses, and crosses may assail you, and then you must say, I will praise your name forever and ever. The devil will come and tell you Christ doesn't care for you, and then you must say, every day I'll praise you. Well, that's true. Our will will be foundational. But secondly, it's not just willpower, it's spirit power. Verse 19, I know that through your prayer and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the prayers of fellow believers make a really significant difference to our ability to continue with joy. When at the end of every service, the service leader says here in this church, if you'd like to receive prayer, do go over to this side. It's not a kind of cosmetic addition. It's something we really believe in, that we are here to support one another, that we don't have to muscle our way through all this just by grit and determination. The prayers of other people make a huge deal of difference. 
and the help of the Holy Spirit himself. That's what Paul says, the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There is a supernatural strength and anointing that allied with our will and these habits bring joy into our lives. Richard Wernbrandt was a Romanian pastor and in his biographical book, Tortured for Christ, he writes of his experience. In several different prisons, they broke four vertebrae in my back and many other bones. They carved me in a dozen places. They burnt and cut 18 holes in my body. But alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. Sometimes I was so filled with joy, I felt I would burst if I didn't give it expression. And curiously, this is really strange in verse 27. Curiously, there is a joy that comes in sharing Christ's sufferings. I'd never have guessed that. But if you take a hard look at verses 27 to 30, it says, whatever happens, says Paul, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 29, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And this very strange teaching is actually the experience of Christ followers. And Jesus seems to repeat it in more than one place. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the apostles and Paul understand in a very remarkable way that it's a privilege, as a matter of fact, to share in the sufferings of Christ. That's why in Acts 5, after the apostles had been flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go, and we're told the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They just pressed on and pressed on and pressed on with God's purpose for their lives. And that's what we must do, and it's what you must do. God's got a purpose for everyone that follows him. And it doesn't have to be all that um, complex a thing. It can just be as simple as keeping on reaching out to people with the love and good news of Jesus Christ. Keeping on being the good news in your area. But I thought it would be appropriate just to end this sermon with another true story of God showing his faithfulness to someone in prison. Some years ago now, I invited a man called Paul Negroot to come and preach at um, a different church, church where I was vicar in Salisbury. And I knew about Pastor Paul that he'd lived through a time in Romania of great oppression and great, great suffering. And I knew that his family had suffered a lot and he'd been in prison many, many times. In the course of a sermon, uh, he told this very true story and it's an amazing story. He said, in the prison that he was incarcerated in, one night, God spoke to one of the um, people in prison and said to him, sing. And this man thought to himself, I cannot sing. If I sing in this prison, the guards will come and uh, they could execute me. But the Holy Spirit kept saying to him, sing. So eventually, 
he started to sing. He asked God, what should I sing? And he sang a hymn, Bless, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of blood, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And then it's got a little chorus and it goes, this is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. Sometime later, in the daytime this time, this same prisoner was at work and his work was polishing the cobbled stones in the courtyard of a prison. And he was surrounded by other prisoners who were doing exactly the same thing. To his horror, he felt the Holy Spirit saying to him, sing. And he thought, there's no way I'm going to be singing. And the Holy Spirit kept saying to him, sing. So he thought, I'll do a compromise, I'll hum. So he started to hum the chorus. And a little time after that, I don't know where they were located, but he came side by side with, an, with the prisoner. And the prisoner and he got to have a conversation. There was a course of months, it, it came out that the very first time, at exactly the time that this man started to sing, this other prisoner was on his bed with a contraption that he put together, all ready to hang himself, when he heard the voice of someone singing. And he said to himself, if someone can find cause in their heart to sing in such a place as this, I must find out what is the cause of this joy. And in the course of time, it turned out that he was the guy next door to this fellow prisoner when he started humming in, in that courtyard. And not surprisingly, in the circumstances after all of that, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. God has an amazing way of stepping into what we would think of as devastating situations, extraordinary reversals, and showing his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Probably each of us can identify with at least one of the things that could steal our joy this morning. But let's identify with the cures as well as the causes. And let's determine that we like Paul would say what matters is that the gospel goes forward. What matters is I cling on to the purposes that Christ has for me in life. What matters is that I would turn to others for prayer for help. I would ask you Holy Spirit to come and make a difference. Lord Jesus Teach us how to respond to all the challenges that come our way. Thank you that it is possible to know your joy and your contentment in even the most extraordinary trials. We pray for those who go through hardship today. We pray for those who are challenged and have lost their sense of joy. Come and restore it, we pray. And build us up that as a fellowship, we might radiate joy and share your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.